Welcome to Sports History 101. Hi, listeners. Welcome to Sports History 101. I hope your day is going well. If your day has started yet, depending on what time you're listening to this, hope your day is going, will going, or went well. Maybe you're doing this at night. Who knows? I am your host, Ray Delgado, and I thank you very much for tuning in today to the podcast. So we'll just hop right into it here as so many sports are in season right now. It's crazy. You've got football, basketball, hockey, and a whole bunch of college sports and everything going on. But one big thing that's going on that is not in season and could potentially not start the season on time is Major League Baseball because of a labor dispute. For those of you who don't know, the players and the owners are fighting with each other. They don't agree. So there's a work stoppage, which could mean that the season is not going to start on time. And I mean, who knows? It could not be played. Who knows? But today we aren't talking about that labor dispute, the one that's currently happening right now. We're going to talk about a different one, which was the 1994-95 season strike. Well, multiple season strike. So first in background, for those who aren't quite as familiar with Major League Baseball, and maybe for those who are, but just need a refresher. The owners and the players relationship has really never been very good. So even before the 1994 and the 90s, like well before then, the relationship was not very good. Since really the start of baseball in the late 1800s, organized like real professional baseball, the owners have always had all the power. They've controlled the salaries. They controlled where players would play. They've controlled... Literally everything start to finish. And obviously they really liked that. But the players didn't. So they they pushed back for a very long time. And then starting in the 60s, excuse me, the players actually got multiple wins in terms of, you know, being able to have some say in the things that go on. So they ended the reserve clause in the 60s and began free agency. So so the reserve clause was a clause in every contract and every Major League Baseball player's contract that they signed that said the owner had the right to re-sign them after every season. So players were at the mercy of the owner, whether the owner wanted to sign them or not. They had no choice in the matter. They had no say. But in the 1960s, that was ended and free agency began, which meant that teams got to shop their skills around for whoever they wanted to. And those teams had to bid on them. And naturally, the salary, average salary went up. Along with that, they got a full pension plan. That was something that the owners really didn't want to do. But the players got a full pension plan. They got the salary minimum raised quite a bit and they also got salary arbitration which salary arbitration is when the player and the owner disagree on what should be paid then they go to an arbitrator which is a 
neutral third party, which for a while it was the commissioner, which was not, which was not impartial, was not, you know, neutral. It later went to a, an actual neutral party. And they basically decide on one number or the other. They decide on what the player thinks they should get and they decide on what the owner thinks they should get. So they got arbitration. And in that time, salaries exponentially increased because of all those things. They increased in 1966, the average was 19,000. In 1982, you know, not even 20 years later, like 15 years later, the average went up to 326,000. Like that's, that's insane. So, Players kept winning. They kept getting winning these small battles, and the owners were not happy naturally, and they tried to win themselves. So they failed to get teams losing a player. That was one of the things that they wanted to do was for teams that were losing a player to free agency, they wanted that club who lost that player to get compensation in some way. And that would essentially cap what players could make because if one team is signing a free agent for a certain amount of money, they then would have to give some type of monetary value to the club that he just came from, even though he's technically a free agent. Naturally, players did not sign off on that because they have a players association, which they is how they bargain and how they, they make all the decisions. The players association represents the players and the owners represent themselves. And the players have to agree to what the owners want to agree to. And that is a collective bargaining agreement is what it's called. So that never made it in the collective bargaining agreement that compensation for free agents. Another one that didn't get in there was a salary cap. So they wanted to make a salary cap work where teams could only spend so much money. You see that now in a bunch of different sports like the NBA and the NFL and others. But that's that didn't happen in baseball. And it wasn't going to happen. Not back then. So owners could not beat the players. They figured out that, you know, they'd lost so many battles as of the last few decades or whatever. They could not beat the players through real ways, through legal ways. So they decided to do it illegally. So they decided to collude against the players to keep salaries down. So the way that they did that was when players became free agents, there was a secret agreement between all of the club owners that no teams would talk to that player. Basically, no team would, you know, entertain signing that player. So that is, in essence, meant that players couldn't find a new team and they had to go back to their original team at a lower price, because if no one's knocking on the door to answer your call that didn't make any sense if no one's answering your call and no one's knocking on your door then like you know there's nothing for you to do so you go back to your original team at a lower price than what you would have wanted in free agency but this wasn't with just like random players like not to say that that's right because it's still not but it wasn't like they could pass it off the owners could pass it off as oh that's just a fluke the guy's not very good there were star players like Kirk Gibson, Carlton Fisk, Tim Raines, Paul Molitor, you know, a lot of guys and a bunch of others that were famous. Most of those guys are Hall of Famers, or at least a handful of them are. They couldn't find new teams, which didn't make any sense at all. 
there's no reason why I think I think Kirk Gibson in one of his in his free agent year in that time was like the reigning MVP and he couldn't find another team. So it logically didn't make any sense. Well, the Major League Baseball Players Association caught on to this when it started in 1985 and filed grievances named collusion one, two, and three across the three years that it happened. So they filed one each year saying that the owners are colluding against the players. This needs to be fixed. So finally, they had their grievances actually heard and they won. And the players were given over $280 million in damages. So, I mean, a relationship that's been tenuous always because it's two working together, but working against each other at all times, the players and the owners, they, yeah, their relationship got even worse. It naturally created distrust and just worse relations with everything because the owners literally just did something illegal and shady behind the player's back. So in 1990, as relations continue to just get worse, owners instituted a lockout after the CBA expired. So when the collective bargaining agreement expires, the players can strike. So they can choose to do it themselves. Like they go on strike and they say that we're not going to play. Or the owners can lock the players out because technically the owners are the ones that are employing the players. So they can lock them out and say, you can't work until we, we institute this, until we get this figured out. So the owners instituted their lockout in 1990, and the commissioner stepped in to get things moved along. And the owners wanted revenue sharing and a salary cap. So revenue sharing, meaning the richest clubs would basically have to share money with the poorest clubs. And the salary cap, which I mentioned before, you see in sports now where teams can only spend so much. And they didn't get either of them. They were not happy with that. And Commissioner Faye Vincent, who, like I said, he wanted to move things along, wanted to get the season going on time and everything. He just said, yeah, you're not going to get revenue sharing. You're not going to get a salary cap. So let's get the CBA moved along. And let's go. Well, owner's not happy. And they removed him two years later, who has a basically like in a coup. And they replaced him with the Brewers owner, Bud Selig. So Bud Selig was the Milwaukee Brewers owner, which is a small market club that was trying to get this salary cap and revenue sharing. He was a huge proponent for it. So essentially what the owners did was put him in power because they knew that he was one of the loudest speakers on the topic and was not going to rest until it was done. So he became the spearhead to really make that the salary cap specifically. He wanted that he made became the spearhead to make that happen when the CBA was going to be renegotiated again in 1994. So that brings us to almost where we are. Well, basically brings us to where we are in terms of the topic of this podcast. So 1994, the key tactic that Selig and the owners used was media. Most of the owners claimed to be losing money. 
you know, they're saying, oh, we're losing money left and right because of TV deals and because of this or that. And they'd go bankrupt if there wasn't a salary cap and revenue sharing, that they just lose everything. Your, your beloved baseball team would go away and life would change as you know it. Well, their claims were completely unsubstantiated. They would not actually share their financial information with anyone including the Players Association, meaning that no one could actually verify that they were even losing money, let alone going close to bankruptcy. So there was, there was no proof. And yet still the media and the fans bought it, vilifying the players, saying that the players were greedy and taking advantage of the poor, poor owners, the poor, poor millionaires, multimillionaires, hundreds of millions of dollars, taking advantage of them because they were so greedy. When the owners, like I said, their claims were completely unsubstantiated. There was no proof. So the owners were obviously on top of the world. They're like, we have the court of, we've won the court of public opinion. It's on our side. And they agreed amongst themselves to a revenue sharing plan and gave Selig the full negotiating power for the owners against the players. They got... Basically, they're all in agreement. Like, all right, well, we've got this in the bag. So we agree we're going to do this revenue sharing plan. And, bud, you're going to be our advocate, and we're going to get this. We're going to get this done. So this is where it starts to get very interesting. And I'll get into that after a quick break. Okay. In June of 1994, the owners proposed what really was just a greedy plan to the players. They laid out their demands. They say, we want a salary cap system. We're going to completely eliminate arbitration. And owners could match the best offer extended to their free agents to keep them. So if they're going to lose a player in free agency and another player offers or another team offers that player $10 million to play for them, the team that he was just leaving could say, yeah, we're going to pay you $10 million and you're coming back to play for us. So they claimed that in aggregate for all of those things, players would actually get more money with the new plan. But again, like they did before, they wouldn't explain it or show any of the metrics to prove it. Just like they wouldn't share their financial information when they claimed they're going broke. They wouldn't show how this is going to benefit the players. They actually said to them to just take, take us at our word. Just take us at our word. When just... 10 years ago, less than 10 years ago, the players collude or the owners colluded against the players. They did illegal things against the players. And they're like, yeah, like seven years later, you know what? Just take us at our word. When like they're basically all the same people, it's all the same owners. So yeah, right. Like that's going to happen. So players, they played through the 1994 season, even though the prior CBA expired on December 31st of 1993, so the year prior, they kept playing until the owners withheld. They decided to withhold a $7.8 million, I guess, payment from the pension and benefits plan. So they're, they tried to withhold this money to pressure the players to sign this CBA, sign this deal with every all of their demands, because they really were demands. So the players responded with a strike date. They said, 
we will strike on August 12th. And what striking means is the players, like I explained a little bit earlier, the players walk out. They will not play. They won't play until an agreement is reached or until they, they say that they'll come back again. And they're, they're well within their rights as a players association to do so. Well, actually as a labor union to do so, not as just a players association. So no agreement was reached and the strike started. So hardly any talks occurred for months. They just didn't talk to each other. So the rest of the 1994 season playoffs and world series were, weren't played. And it's estimated that over $800 million was lost between the owners and the players because they didn't play those games. So in December, which mind you, the strike started in the middle of August in December, owners voted to institute a CBA themselves, which included a salary cap. And they're like, yeah, we're just going to do this. And the players said, no. So January month later, the owners took out the salary cap and then decided to reinstate the former CBA. So they just went with the one that had expired at the end of 1993. They just decided, you know what, we're going to, we're going to ratify that one again, but they voted also to hire replacement players. So they're like, okay, major league baseball, if you guys don't want to play, then we'll find players to replace you. The players responded with a lawsuit. They sued the owners on March 27th of 1995 for violating labor laws. It's like, you can't just institute a new collective bargaining agreement and then hire other people. Like that's, that's not how this works. You have to, you know, there's rules to be followed here. So they were granted an injunction with that lawsuit that stopped the season from starting with replacement players. So we never actually saw the replacement players in baseball. That would have been a complete joke and a disaster because, I mean, there's a lot of baseball, good baseball players out there, but there's a reason they're not in the major leagues. So in response to getting that injunction and with that lawsuit out, the players agreed finally to go back to work with that new leverage. So the strike ended on April 2nd, 1995, but it still took quite a while for the CBA to be agreed upon, but still the players went back to work. They said, okay, we're, we're going back. So all in all, the strike lasted 232 days. That's a long time. And 948 games were canceled. Most all of them from 1994, because they missed, you know, from August all the way through October. And the 1995 season was shortened from 162 games to 144 games. So yeah, all in all, almost a thousand games were canceled and that's so much money. Moral of the story with all this is the players won again. And, you know, you keep, you keep winning the battles, you know, then you'll eventually win the war you'd imagine. But this is an ongoing war that's just going to keep going. But that's not to say that the owners would never win. They'd eventually get their wins, you know, in, in some regard. They have a luxury tax now, which means it's a, a relative salary cap. It's kind of the same thing. If teams go over a certain threshold, they spend over a certain threshold, they're then taxed, meaning they just have to pay for depending on how much they go over, they have to pay a certain amount of money back 
and that money then gets dispersed to you know the the lower lower teams essentially it gets divvied up so they got that and then they did get revenue sharing to some degree like that's the same with the luxury tax stuff they got some revenue sharing and then they were able to set draftee and international signing limits because Major League Baseball, like, well, not Major League Baseball. When you go into the Major League draft, the June draft, you are not a part of the Players Association yet, so the owners still have control over you. So they were able to limit the signing amounts for draftees and then also international players who also were not under the Players Association yet. It's only when you actually start to play in the league do you become a member of the MLBPA. So the owners did get their wins, but... The players still have the upper hand, and I mean rightfully so. The owners ruled everything for like 80 years, and now the players are just getting their due. I mean, players can get too much power, and you know, depending on on your stances on different things in different leagues, you know, some do have too much power, some don't have enough. But who's to really say when there's ever a happy medium? So, I mean, that's the 1994-95 strike. And baseball is once again in a labor dispute now, but this time it was the owners who instituted a lockout. It wasn't a strike. It was a lockout. So like the 90, like the 94, 95 strike, you know, a lot has gone into the current dispute before they actually shut stuff down. I mean, just a couple of years ago, they had issues and then the pandemic hit and they had issues with how many games they were going to play and how they're going to compensate players. And it's, you know, it's just, just getting worse and worse. The strike in the 90s turned quite a few people off to the sport of baseball. But after a few short years, it bounced back. I mean, we'll see how it, how it changes this time. I mean, people keep saying baseball is on the decline, and yet they keep making more and more and more money each year at a at a pretty good clip it's not just like an inflation type of thing they keep making more and more money and baseball is supposed to be dying so we'll see how this affects it if people are totally turned off to the sport by seeing more unrest amongst the the players and the owners again who knows but what we do know is history favors the players but you know we'll see who comes out on top compared to 1995 when the players came out on top then and before then and before and before and before. But hey, there's always a chance for for their luck to change. Let's put it that way. So thanks again for listening. And I hope you tune in next time. And until that next time, stay safe and remember that Jesus loves you. Mm-hmm.